Hey, this is Karma, host of Public Affair. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like it, I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast, and I also hope that you'll donate to 89.9 FM, WORT. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Thank you for listening to a Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. We are Madison's listener-supported community radio. It is December 21st, 2022, and I'm your host, Karma Chavez, in from Austin, Texas. Uh, thanks to Jade for having me out here with you today. So how do social and political changes happen? What is the relationship between an individual and structural reform? Is the personal actually political? These are the kinds of questions that writer and activist Yasmin Nair has been pushing those on the political left to consider in different ways than what they usually do. Put differently, Nair's work has long asked whether empathy has the capacity to make the structural changes that many purport to want. Her answer has almost uniformly been no. In a recent essay in Current Affairs, Nair considers these kinds of questions in relation to what she has long called trauma feminism, or the expectation that women of color and other marginalized people must vomit out their tales of trauma and woe in order to amplify feminist objectives. In the first part of the show today, we're going to dig into this idea of trauma feminism and understand what our guests uh, thinks it suggests about today's leftist movements. And then in the second part of the show, we're going to turn our attention to something that will, I think, show itself to be related, which is uh, the politics of publishing. So my guest today is Yasmin Nair. Uh, she is a writer, activist, and academic. She's co-founder with Ryan Conrad of the Radical Queer Editorial Collective Against Equality and the policy director of the Chicago Queer Radical Collective Gender Just. Her work has appeared in publications like The Baffler, In These Times, Fox, and Electronic Intifada, as well as in several anthologies. She also writes for and is an unpaid editor-at-large at Current Affairs. She's working on a book titled Strange Love, How Social Justice Was Invented and Why It Needs to Die. The work looks critically at social justice movements, including those organized around immigration, gay marriage, and feminism. Nair's work emerges from an anti-racist, anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, and abolitionist perspective, but she is also critical of the banal form of identity politics that suffuses most woke left writing. She can lay claim to several identities, queer, disabled, uh, brown, housing precarious, female, vaguely foreign, a woman with terrorist hair, a crazy cat lady, and others she may have forgotten but chooses not to use to justify her arguments. Yasmin, welcome to A Public Affair. <laughs> Thank you. What a lovely introduction. Thank you, Karma. It's wonderful well, to be back here. <laughs> it's, a pl it's a pleasure to have you back. We were just commenting that yeah. uh, almost exactly 10 years ago, we did a show <laughs> together uh, here on A Public Affair. So uh, here we are 10 years later. It's our 10th anniversary. <laughs> it is. It's our 10th anniversary. So uh, yeah. So if anyone wants to uh, join us today and celebrate our 10th anniversary on the air, uh, go ahead and give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Uh, you can also post to our A Public Affair Facebook page. Uh, we'll be happy to get your questions or comments uh, on the air. So I hate to begin this way, given uh, your politics, but I do want to start by talking about you and particularly how you first came to be suspicious of the use of identity in politics. Oh, all my life. Um, actually, <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I think it began probably in grad school um, when I was finishing up or trying to finish up at the time my dissertation on this is a very 90s term, not deviancy. <laughs> this is big in the 90s. People will recognize the term from, you know, this is the time of Judith Butler, queer theory, etc. And deviancy was a big deal. And anyway, that was what I was writing about, was alternative identities, as it were. And I recall there was this one, there were many, many moments, of course, but there was this one time when someone... Uh, a professor insisted, a woman and a queer woman, it's a complicated story, is, you know, suggested, let's just say, that 
you know, I had I had alluded to something personal in one of my in one of in an early draft of one of my chapters, and then I removed that. In you know, you sort of work through theory in different ways, and I removed that, and I was talking more theoretically and analytically. And she strongly suggested that I should reinsert that personal story because that was so provocative and strong. And I, I think that was one of the first moments and that what occurred to me is what occurs, I think, and what a lot of people of color in particular and women of color and women and marginalized people in academia in particular understand is that they're often not seen as anal- uh, capable of analysis that all they have to offer is their private stories and their private lives. And I think that set me on the course for what well, this is about 20, 30 years ago, um, you know, of constantly interrogating and realizing that a lot of what I was, you know, I do a lot of theoretical and analytical work, which is, of course, based on what I see and understand about the world around me, which is exactly how every white dude has done this for millennia. But I was constantly either not being published, for instance, or not regarded as authentic enough because I refused to divulge any traumas I may or may not have had. Um, and that, I think, has been, uh, I think, the inequalities that we see on the left, uh, which is to say the, way, the reasons why only certain people are allowed to speak out on left issues, on economic issues, on material, with materialist analysis, is, uh, you know, is precisely because a lot of people who are of color, who are mar- seen as marginalized, aren't considered authentic voices on the left, unless... Well, yeah. So let's dig into this this concept of authenticity mm-hmm. a little bit, because that seems to be at, at the heart of your argument. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, it, it's not to say that identity doesn't matter in the sense that obviously it informs your perspective, but it is to say that there is an expectation to perform that identity in specific ways. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. Always. Always. Um and that identity can, you know, that authenticity also requires, the requirement for authenticity is also that you present yourself as a traumatized person, that you have some sort of pain to share, which again is not demanded, certainly is not demanded of white men. And it's sometimes demanded of white women, but not really always. You know, the, uh, I think in political discourse and in intellectual discourse, a person is not a person of, of a, a person of color is not a person unless they can bear their soul and their life and their trauma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We see so, this with AOC a lot, for instance, and we, you know we can talk about that. Yeah, I definitely want to get into to that in in a little bit, but I want to, I guess, f- first then maybe um, moving from there. So I gave a, a rough definition of, of trauma feminism, but maybe you could sort of elaborate on that specific uh, putting together of trauma and feminism as you're theorizing it. Sure. I think that feminism as it's construed today, let's consider, for instance, the abortion battle. And the, you know, we have lost a great deal, yes, on the abortion front. And the only way that the what we might call the left, the broad section of the left, you know, liberals, progressives, leftists, and so on. The only way we seem to be able to argue for abortion rights, for instance, is on, it relies on the idea that abortion is either traumatic for women, but we must grant it to them, or that not having abortion rights is somehow traumatizing to them personally. So that's, a huge problem because what we do what we're then doing is to deny the fact that abortion is fundamentally an economic issue if you don't grant women the right to abortion if you don't grant people the right to abortion you are refusing them the right to carry on with their economic lives as and when they as they wish to right if you a woman we don't want so i think Trauma feminism has served. So that's the case of abortion. Then there's the case of um, women needing to legitimate themselves as traumatized, traumatized subjects when, for instance, they are sexually assaulted or harassed. And, and this is, I think, the fundamental failure of the Me Too movement is that it has located sexual you know, abuse and assault on the basis of this is causing trauma to women. Whereas the fundamental problem is actually the tremendous inequality that exists within, especially the, 
especially cultural industries and certainly the film industry, certainly the entertainment industry. But it's not that that's just an economic problem, but that this is a problem of power. This is a problem. This is not just that it leaves women traumatized for the rest of their lives, which again, we can go into that issue in, in a little bit, but it is that fundamentally, a lot of what happens to people, to women in particular, is about power structures. So, you know, when you, when you deny that analysis, when you negate that analysis, especially around abortion, around sexual assault, then you're not really allowing for fundamental change to occur. So, and I think mm -hmm. feminism today has become deeply embedded in this notion of, of trauma. And I see it, unfortunately, increasing, um, you know, on a daily basis. You now have, for instance, performance artists, women and other, you know, who, however they identify, running around the country and presenting their trauma stories, right? This mm -hmm. whole business of storytelling. And my question is always, well, what if a person doesn't have a story to tell you? Why is the analysis not enough? Mm -hmm. Why does that have to be authenticated with... For instance, okay, let's look at immigration, something that you and I have both worked on. Mm -hmm. Immigration. Let us consider the fact that there has not been, for the last 30 years, there has not been a single decent advance in immigration, quote-unquote, reform. Mm -hmm. What we do have are many stories about sad immigrants, separated immigrants, immigrants separated from their fathers and from their children and so on and so forth. But we don't have any material change because so much of the focus is on, is, there, is this immigrant someone we can feel sad about? Mm -hmm. right? And so there's, no, there's been no substantive immigration reform, really. The only people for whom we grant any kind of, um, any kind of change, right, are, for instance, DACA people, mm -hmm. because they are sad young people who were brought here against their will and um, for, might be separated and so on. But, sure. you know, there was a time, as you might recall, right, there was a time, and we know this as historians, there was a time when immigration reform was being fought for on the basis of economic issues, right? So NAFTA was an issue, uh, the Bariqua program, all of these were economic, we were arguing on the, for immigration reform on the basis that to have so many people be defined as illegal is to enact fundamental exploitation, Mm -hmm. upon vast numbers of people. And why are people migrating in the numbers that they are? It's not because they're coming here for a better life. It's because economically we have shattered neoliberalism, the privatization of the economy yeah. in so many parts of the world has shattered businesses right. and, 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 family, and families. Yeah. That's why they're migrating. Yeah. But so over and over, if you think about trauma, you know, if you think about the, the pictures of that child on the beach, right, the three-year-old who washed mm -hmm. up on the beach, those are the stories we use to then say, ah, yes, immigration, yes, we must worry about immigrants. And my attitude yeah. is, no, how about we start thinking about analytically why is this happening? Yeah, no, 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 that makes sense. If you're uh, just joining us uh, on A Public Affair, we're uh, talking with Yasmin Nair about right now trauma feminism and the sort of deployment of particular kinds of emotions in the political sphere. If you'd like to join the conversation, uh, dial 608-256-2001, extension 9, or you can post on our Public Affair Facebook page. We'll be happy to get your questions or comments on the air. So I want to dig in, Yasmin, to the this piece that you just published in uh, last week, I guess it was, at Current Affair and Current Affairs, um, The Perils of Trauma Feminism. And so in, in the piece, you're talking about two very different authors. So on the one hand, uh, Rafia Zakaria, who's a Pakistan-born attorney and a feminist activist who wrote a book called Against White Feminism, Notes on Disruption. And then the other author you're talking about is Kyla Schuler who is a U.S. white woman and a tenured professor at Rutgers, who wrote a book called The Trouble with White Women, A Counterhistory of Feminism. So I guess I want to take each in turn and then talk about the relationship between the two. So let's begin with Zakaria. What's her book about and why is it such a good example of what we've been talking about so far? So Zakaria's book is actually, it's promising. It's a series of chapters on different kinds of feminist projects that in effect perhaps were either dismantled or resisted precisely because 
there's an attitude within white feminists, as she puts it, right, that, that white feminists in particular tend to demand, for instance, narratives from women of color or that they don't allow women of color in particular to actually engage and be leaders in the movements. And it's so it's interesting. And she has a, uh, some chapters that, for instance, there's a chapter about um, non the nonprofits in Bangladesh in ba- in Bangladesh, and this I you know there was this movement a while back that um, for to allow Bangladeshi women to uh, to adopt new kinds of stoves, and with the idea that they this would free them up and this would free up their time and they would become more modernized. And Zakaria's point is really good, which is she's and that's one of the strongest chapters where she says actually you know, this is a white feminist idea, but in fact the women in particular. Like we don't want these stoves, and actually we like the ways in which we are able to communally interact with each other. By and, and the whole idea behind this was that the women were going out into the forest and and collecting wood. So then there was this environmental argument, apparently. So you know, oh well, if they if we give them stoves that don't use firewood, is better for the environment. But in fact, the women were actually collecting kindling; they were not cutting down trees. So you know, the, there are. In those, in sort of, in, in in a couple of chapters, she does a really good job of pointing out how white feminism, in particular, imposes its ideas upon uh, women of color. But you know, the problems with I think she's it's a very constrained book in a sense. You can also sort of tell sometimes when an author isn't able to say what she would really like to say, so it ends up being rather banal, and she doesn't really have a vision of dismantling the structure beyond a very sort of non-profit driven idea of we must all have parity. I'm like, okay, but how do you do that? And you know, it's also, unfortunately, and this does have to do, I think, with her being a woman of color and perhaps and this is, it's a terribly boring book. It is so deeply boring. <laughs> it is so deeply boring. I had to claw my arm a lot just to stay awake to read. But hold on, let me let me let me let me and jump in here. Point. Let me ask you something about this though, because <laughs> it seems to me that y- you would be on side for a boring book in the sense that then it wouldn't be a sort of prompting uh, emotion that would lead to you know overshadowing the analysis. <laughs> no, no, no. There's, it's one thing to prompt emotion; it's quite another to leave the reader wanting to just die in a pool of something. <laughs> you know, you must keep the reader engaged. It's it's a terribly it's, it was so interesting to read because it, you can sort of tell when she's when the writer has had all life stamped out of her because, you know, no, you mustn't be because the, I guess I don't know. Maybe she thought the thesis of the book is so provocative and the title itself, as you know, is so provocative uh, that she couldn't really ex- do go of the further stuff of actually expressing that in a provocative way as well. I don't know. It's, it's a deeply boring book. It's. It's, I think it's an important book for people to read. I do think people mm-hmm. should read it. So, for instance, you know, the Bangladesh chapter that I referred to, I think white feminists do need to have this book shoved in their faces and told, listen, read. It's unfortunately doesn't do a good job of, it, you know, of, of um, expanding on its thesis. But I still think it's an important book in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Okay. So, well, so now let's ju- juxtapose this kind of the, 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 the way you're using this book to, to, to marshal this analysis vis-a-vis the, the Kyla Schuler book. The Kyla Schuler book is a nice white lady <laughs> telling nice white ladies about how bad white feminism is. And I think this is where one does have to consider the subject positions of the authors when you're reading books and I feel like the Kyla Schuler book is very much a white woman taking upon herself the mantle of uh, the big white c- critic. In some ways, it's a very Karen-ish book. You know, it's Karen against other Karens, as it were. And it's, it, it, but it's in the prose. So she takes what she does in this book is to look at different biographies of women who she says have been mostly marginalized or forgotten. So she looks at you know, Native American uh, act. She looks at one Native American um, activist. She looks at a couple of African American activists. One trans person, uh, Sandy Stone, I think. Yes, but the problem there is that um, it's a. She completely leaves out Asian women, which I think is not. And the point there is not to talk about identity. Oh, why didn't you talk about the Asian woman as well? But the point is, I think that 
this analysis that we find on the on the sort of the kind of the putative left feminist side, which is this tendency, I think, these days for white women in particular and white people on the left in particular to take up the positions of um, being the ones who will articulate the critique, right? Being the ones who will say what the what rack and brown people cannot say. That, I think, often ends up being in itself very condescending. So when she looks at Zitka Lassa, a Native American activist, uh, from a, uh, who is actually not as um, unknown as she claims, Zitka Lassa is actually pretty well known. <laughs> but when she looks at her life, she begins by evoking this very stereotypical narrative of the beautiful um, Native American child running wild and free and being connected to the earth. And the entire chapter is drawn through on that particular thread of the authenticity of the Native American woman who is closer to nature, as it were. And I think that if one is to talk about the existence of people of color, it's really necessary to also you know, to de-link them from the ways in which we would like people of color to have lived and responded, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so, and that's a problem. And then in the in the in the chapter about the trans activist, it, what's fascinating to me is that in a book, you know, about critiquing white feminism, she quietly ignores the fact that the trans activist is white throughout. Right. right. So, <laughs> I thought, why is her whiteness not being considered in terms of the access of power. So this is very, and you know, so, and I think that power and identity are extremely complicated, right? So you could transition, for instance, from, you know, from one gender to the other and still maintain racial hierarchy, mm -hmm. or you could transition from one gender to the other towards one where there is more power ascribed, right? To one gender than the other and mm -hmm. people who transition you know we st if you still use the term you know mtf or M fdm will say you know this is the thing that surprised me the thing that surprised me about transitioning and becoming a woman was realizing how you know really how bad it is to live as a woman and mm. i've had you know male trans, trans friends of mine say what surprised me and shocked me and horrified me was how much power i acquired Right. right? Yeah. I mean, there's this fun, you know, so trans people understand that. And I think from the outside, cis het people in particular tend to, you know, and, and then of course, if you're transitioning as a person of color, there's a whole other set of dynamics that comes sure. into all of that. And so for me, for my, you know, my work has always been about really thinking about power, right? Mm -hmm. What does power really look like? It doesn't look like supplanting one with the other. It doesn't mean that you diversify your board and suddenly everyone gets equal, right? Mm -hmm. it, it also has to be about how complicated this particular axis is. And the difficult conversation I think to have on the left is to have that critique of identity, but also remain certain that identity is also what, uh, what, what oppresses people in many ways. Their identity categories are what you know, if you are a black trans person, or if you're a black lesbian, or if you're an Asian feminist, you know, your race and ethnicity will play into how, how you're able to marshal power. And I think the left doesn't want wants to constantly ignore that, right? Because there's this whole, um, I think in many parts of the left, there's this attitude that only the only thing that matters is a class analysis, right? Or the only thing that matters is how, you know, how do you end how do you shift power? And I'm like, yeah, but you know, this stuff is embedded in our economic, political, and cultural DNA. And we have to grapple with the complexities of it all. Well, and I think that's what is, is um, you know, listening to you talk out your analysis, I think that's what's sort of important to highlight is you're not making the argument that we might see by some socialists uh, that, that sort of think identity politics have destroyed the possibility of, you know, class coalescing because, um, you know, it's messed things up. Sort of you're suggesting that actually, you know, yes, we need the deep class analysis, but what that uh, requires actually is reckoning with these different complexities as right. well. And something that I always uh, write and say, and which I need to really turn into a piece uh, in the new year is, 
whiteness is an identity. Yeah. And somehow white leftists constantly forget that. It's miraculous. And what is also, of course, so interesting also, of course, as we know, right, from um, how the Irish became white, Ignatiev's work, right, and many other works, which is that whiteness itself is constructed constantly. Yeah. I mean, the Irish were not white when they entered. The Italians were not white, right? What is the process for a while there? And I think even now, Arab Americans are not are considered white, much to many of their chagrin. You know? Yeah, to, to so the government. How did I become white? And yet I don't have the privileges of whiteness when I enter a store, for instance, right? So whiteness itself is a contested identity, but it is an identity. And yeah. I think what is ha- I think what has happened and what is still happening in the left, because we have to remember that the left's progress on several social issues, including gay identity, we can still recall the communist idea that gay identity is a bourgeois identity. Right. But I mean, all that nonsensical stuff still does uh, float through the left. So the left has only recently, the last maybe 30 years, even considered gay issues. So it's, yeah. it's, it's a battle to draw them into anything else. And I think that a lot of what's happening on the left uh, it, around identity is, in, for many people, I think, a kind of resentment. Mm-hmm. Right? Why, aren't, why can't I, as a white leftist, simply be adored and worshipped for saying that black people are equal or for saying that I marched with MLK. I mean, the whole march with MLK thing is 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 just rampant. I always think, well, you know, I've seen the photographs. I don't know if everyone had marched with MLK. The photographs would look so different. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) But yes, I think the left has um, it's not an economic analysis at all. It's, Mm -hmm. It's a refusal. So when, for instance, 2016, Trump's election. And there were leftists in various publications writing about the WWC. They even came up with an acronym for it, the Mm -hmm. white working class. Yeah. And the analysis was that we have betrayed the white working class. And a whole bunch of us were sitting around going, excuse me, but working class people are also black. And in this country, a great, a a large number of them are also Latino and Latina, you know, so... Mm -hmm. People of color are working class. I mean, I'm quote unquote from Indiana and there are, you know, entire towns built on the labor and the economy provided, you know, encouraged by um, immigrant workers. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's absolutely true. No, I mean, I just wanted to kind of take that point to to clarify your analysis or to put not to clarify because you weren't clear, but to put a finer point on it for those who might be hearing you in the way that I was hearing you. Whiteness is an identity. That needs to be embroidered, bronze, do whatever you will with it. It needs to be plastered everywhere. Whiteness yeah. is an identity. So if you're going to critique white identity politics, let us consider not whether or not whiteness needs to be, you know, um, whiteness needs to be erased as an identity, but let us consider that identity and class and economics and politics are all complicated in their relationships to each other. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM in Madison. We're talking with writer and activist Yasmin Nair about trauma feminism and uh, whiteness as an identity. Some other things. Give us a call here in Madison at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also post to our Facebook page, A Public Affair. We'll be happy to get your questions or comments on the air. So we have about 25 minutes left uh, in the show, and I do want to kind of get to the our second subject, but I guess maybe um, the the question I'll uh, leave this section with before I transition is, so where does your analysis leave us in terms of the role of the personal in the political? Is there a role for the personal at all? I think there can be. Uh, uh, my my current, uh, the book the one that I'm working on about social justice, actually, if is based on what I have seen and experienced as a long-term activist um, in Chicago. I think the personal is relevant in ter- when it is used to illuminate how processes work, for instance. But it, I think the problem with a lot of the use of the personal in contemporary discourse is that it tends to be used as a legitimizing tool which is where you then get situations where someone says, well, your analysis is wrong because this is what happened. This is what I know from my personal experience. I think that's the difference, right? If, if, it's one thing to say, 
I, as an, as an activist, experienced this, this, and this. And I can also prove that this particular strand of, let's say, feminism exists to legitimize people based on all this analysis I can give you around the, you know, for instance, the way funding works, right? Funding, for instance, works based on how much trauma can your subjects produce? A lot of funders want to hear all the stories about the nice, poor, sweet, you know, youth of color and all the traumas they experience. So you can say, you know, so I think the personal can become a tool, yes, with which to perform a certain kind of analysis, but it cannot and it should not be used to simply uh, erase and legitimize analysis. I think that's the big the difference. Um, and the ways in which, for instance, you know, women are constantly pitted against people of color, constantly pitted against each other based on what, how bad their trauma can be, for instance. And I think that's why we really need to distance ourselves from uh, these kinds of uh, legitimizations and also invocations and demands for trauma mm -hmm. performance. Mm -hmm. It's also psychologically damaging. Mm -hmm. You cannot go through your whole life doing this. You cannot go through your whole life just constantly vomiting out your personal story in order to get the most basic funds. I mean, this is very cruel. This is just cruel. I see it all the time, especially in terms of youth organizing, but that's a whole other show. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that demand is certainly mm -hmm. there. And spoken word, about which we will do another show because that my ire against spoken <laughs> word is, I think, well known in some circles. But spoken word for youth of color is 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 a tool of domination. Yeah, that's. I mean, I I, I suspect we feel the same about uh, about that. But uh, you're right. Let's let's save that for for another show because I I do want us in the last like 20 minutes or so mm -hmm. of the show today. Um, I, I want us to transition, and I think there is actually a a, a really seamless transition between talking about trauma feminism, talking about the the problematic ways that identity gets uh, deployed in politics, and then also thinking about um, the question of who gets to tell a story or offer their analysis in the first place and, and how it is then that certain industries may very well be dictating mm -hmm. uh, that in addition to like the nonprofit industrial complexes we've I think been intimating throughout this conversation. And so I wonder if you talk a little bit about how the publishing industry facilitates or, or at least participates in the problematics that, that we've been discussing so far. Mm -hmm. Well, for one thing in the most, op well, first of all, we have to acknowledge that the publishing industry is, is, is such a mess right now, um, especially on the side of the left. We've just recently seen two, literary magazines, Astra and, um, and uh, Book Forum die because their rich funders decided it wasn't worth their time. So I think that, I think against that backdrop of publishing and it's, it's of course, absolutely, it's about who gets published, but it's also about who is funding publishing, right? What kinds of publications can stay alive now? Um, and how do we as readers have a role in thinking about and supporting the kind of publishing we'd like to see? So in terms of trauma, I think what you're asking is, um, how does pu the publishing industry facilitate that? Well, if you open up any major publisher right now, their website, Simon & Schuster, whatever, I think there are what? There are maybe four big publishers left right now. I think one day we will only have two and then another day we will have one because they're all being consolidated. But let's, if you just, let's just imagine that we still have four big publishers. But if you open up their websites, so many of the titles are around trauma. So many of the titles are, I was, and you also get trauma narratives from people who are not even 40, people who are not even 30, but who happen to be immigrants and suddenly have a memoir that is simply soaked with trauma. You know, my I came here as a child of five, and now let me tell you my story. And I, you're not even thirty. You have, you know, it's I understand, <laughs> but a lot. Why are you writing a memoir? So there's that issue with the whole point of you know the whole genre of memoir, which needs to die, frankly. And I think there should be a, a law that you cannot publish a memoir until you turn fifty. <laughs> Let us just, even if you were a child soldier in Rwanda, you cannot write a memoir. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, rant over. 
But if you look at any of the major and even minor publishing houses, and there are many of those, so many uh, memoirs, again, are based on the writer's trauma story, right? And that, and I, I have had this issue quite often where I have presented my analysis and it's simply not considered acceptable, simply, and again, this is where I'm using my personal story, yes, but I'm also pointing to a larger pattern you can see where you don't get people of color, women, for instance, giving these, what I know are fantastic analyses of economic downtrends or of what it mean, what immigration means. If you are writing about immigration and you're an immigrant, you better have at least three chapters about walking across the border with your parents. <laughs> right? I mean, and I'm not mocking those narratives. I'm simply saying this is the narrative, which is the narrative that publishers expect, which is also why we see a related phenomenon, which is the fake story. Mm -hmm. So recently, for instance, in New York City, we just had a Republican uh, lawmaker exposed as not having gone to Baruch College, not having done this, not having done that. And you know, he's a person of color. I forget his name. People can look this up. But, you know, all these narratives, you know, the same with AOC, who is, for instance, uh, comes from a middle class background. Yes, the death of her father had certain economic effects on her family, you know, because this is America. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Things are all about who you are, where you are on the economic spectrum. But she's, you know, but the kind of class identity that she was able to deploy, which isn't quite, you know, she went to Boston University. So that's not, you know, she comes from a relatively solidly middle class, upper middle class background. But again, the demand has always been that she enact herself as a kind of traumatized working class, right? She worked in a bar. I'm like, okay, look, listen, a lot of people work at bars and are not lower <laughs> class, are not working class. You know, let's just, and I know, I actually personally know a lot of people on the left who have actually taken up jobs, like, you know, which they like to think of as solid work just for the sake of having a story later to tell about it right, right. So that they look better you know they, they need that kind of street cred so i think w publishing is has has these demands that it makes of marginalized people i'll give you an, and i think that um, you know i'll give you an example on democracy now some a few months ago i think her name is uh Drukella Purnell. Um, I apologize to uh, listeners that I uh, I can't, but she's written, a, she's young, she's young, she's African-American, she's an abolitionist, and she's written about how she came into abolitionist politics. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching the interview and the, you know, and she was talking about how she came to it analytically. And at one moment, um, uh, uh, what's her name? Um, Amy Goodman interrupted her and said, you were raped. And I remember I was drinking my coffee and it sort of you know, spur spurted it out. I was like, what is going on here? And she insisted that this young, black, brilliant lawyer, author, all of that, this woman who had all these accomplishments, she insisted that she retell that story of having mm. been raped. Mm. And that was related to her abolitionist politics. Two days later, um, Amy Goodman interviewed a white queer woman who had been in prison and mm -hmm. had written a story you know had written a book about it and about the prison industrial complex not one word about any kind of personal uh trauma she may have experienced she was right. never asked and i have no doubt that a queer woman in prison suffered mightily right. i have no we all know what the prison industrial complex does to even the most normative identities right, right. so that difference right, is exactly the kind of difference. I, and I think that, you know, these two authors, I've, I've watched them publicize their books and so on. And the ways in which they're compelled, right, the black woman is constantly asked to relay her trauma story, while the white woman is allowed to present simply her analysis. Mm -hmm. of, you know, they're talking about exactly the same subject, the prison industrial complex. Mm. But so I think that that's a way in which, and the publishing industry is uh, incredibly heartless. It is entirely, you know, the mainstream publishing industry is entirely driven by profits and which is fine. But the, the question for us becomes when 
independent publishing is facing so much stress and pressure and is barely able to exist, even Mm -hmm. when it's funded by, and and perhaps because some of it is funded by billionaires, right? Like, so these two magazines that I mentioned at the very beginning, Astro and Book Book Forum, and The Intercept had the same problem. It's funded by a billionaire and is now trying to develop a funding model that doesn't depend on this billionaire because what happens when he takes his money out, right? Mm -hmm. So you have on the one hand that fragility experienced by independent uh, presses, and then you have the mainstream which really only gives out vaguely okay advances to some based on the degree of trauma. And, you know, so I think these, um, all of that ends up creating a situation where the only people eventually, this may seem like a jump, but it's not. I think what's happening in publishing is also connected to this notion of trauma and reactivating your trauma constantly in writing, which is to say that Publishing is now a world where the only people who can write are people who can afford to do it as a hobby. Mm-hmm. I am a lo- I am one of the I'm a di- part of a dying breed. I'm a mm-hmm. dinosaur in the sense that I make my money as much as I can through writing. But mm-hmm. there are not very many people like me because it's 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 impossible. It's impossible mm-hmm. unless you have family money, unless you have an inheritance, unless you have a job on the side. You simply cannot write these days because. Mm-hmm. Uh, who pays for writing you know right. that, that's a whole other segment perhaps but and I think so what I think is happening in terms of trauma is that people are amping up their trauma narratives so right. I, you know I'm not going to name it but I can think about one recent book for instance by an immigrant of color etc and this is someone who I know for a fact has a fantastic analysis on the immigration and power but all of that is erased in favor of you know, childhood trauma, the midlife trauma. Well, midlife as in how does someone who's not even 35 count? <laughs> like, what is this? He was 17. <laughs> I don't mean to be ages, but can we just acknowledge that one must have lived a life to tell a memoir? Anyway. Um, <laughs> as well, I say, the advantage of being both 26 and 95. That, that is that is a, a position you hold and you, and, you, and you do it well. But I think... Um, Part of part of what you're 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 pointing to too is just that there is uh, one I think a, a certain kind of pressure uh, to want to get the story out, and I also think social media has contributed to this with the kind of influencers idea. And one of the ways to get a following right is to have this kind of special story. Does that track? Yes, yes. The influencer model is also fascinating because I think a lot of people don't realize that the influencers see being successful are A, either not as successful as they think they are. And there are some fantastic movies, almost all of them uh, starring Aubrey Plaza, I might add. I don't know why, but she's great in these kinds of movies, which expose the mechanics behind influencers. But I mean, you know, a lot of influencers either are not making that kind of money or, or very few actually make the kind of money mm-hmm. we imagine them making. And it's a, it's a really fake economy. And it's also an economy that, as we know from the many tragic deaths of many influencers in the last couple of years, it's, it's, a, life, it's a life and a lifestyle. It can be extremely uh, stressful, to say the mm-hmm. least, right? So, uh, but I do think, yes, I think a lot of people, I think writers have become influencers in their own ways. I think there's always been this idea that the writer leads a glamorous life in New York, um, which is another problem is how New Yorkish the, the mm. life of the writer is, right, mm-hmm. for many people. But I think there is this fantasy, and I think influence the influencer economy is linked to this fantasy of the writer yeah. as an, you know, and people really do see, and I say this as someone who subscribes to New York Magazine, but people do see pictures of writers who look like they're having the best time of their lives. And I'm thinking, they're living in New York City. They're probably sharing, you know, it's probably a seven <laughs> person to one person, seven right. people to one apartment. The, the bathroom is probably not functioning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's if they're lucky. They probably have to use the toilet on the second floor that they pay someone. You know, you have no idea how miserable life is right now. It always has been, right? But I think, I, there is something odd 
I also find that a lot of people want to be writers. I find that mm-hmm. fascinating. I mean, I've always wanted to be a writer, but I'm like, this has become well, a new thing. Well, I wanted to, uh, this is something I wanted to, to ask you about. Again, folks, uh, you're listening to a public affair on WORT 89.9 FM here talking with Yasmin Nair. We have about uh, nine minutes left in the show. So uh, join us at 608-256-2001 if uh, you want to, uh, extension nine. Happy to get a quick question or comment on the air here. But I guess that's, I wanted to ask you something I think relates to this, which is the, uh, I guess, the medium phenomenon, for lack of a, a better word, or the substack. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because to me, you know, I remember back in the day, you used to get newsletters. Uh, mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. almost everybody stopped doing newsletters. Right. And now everybody's doing newsletters again. Um, and also, you know, a lot of people seem to maybe get their start uh, for a bigger writing career or so it would seem on something like medium and Substack, and so i wonder if that relates to what we're talking about here yeah well you know i back in the day as you know i used to write a lot and i and i plan to return to the subject uh, i used to write a lot about people being scabs if they were writing for places like huffpo which at the time mm. did not pay and even now actually does not pay particularly does not pay very much i find it appalling frankly that people I think a lot of people feel that they have no choice these days because Substack just offers such an easy platform, I think, you know, for people. and it's also very difficult to set up your own website. Uh, but, you know, these are people who are writing in the hope, again, many, there are a few who are making, I think, sometimes a million dollars or over uh, from Substack because of all these complicated arrangements that Substack has with some writers and so on. Um, but, you know, if you're writing for a place like Medium and Substack, which could actually, which has a ton of money, which has millions and millions of dollars of money, which could just say, you know what, we're going to hire these people as writers, give them healthcare, give them everything they need, and just support, you know, a, a group of people and perhaps subdivide them into you write on culture, you write on politics, and so on. These are companies that could do that, but don't. And instead, they just profit off the free work done by hundreds of thousands of people who are all hoping to hit the big time. And again, as with influencer culture on Substack and Medium, now, of course, it's much more Substack than it is Medium. uh, There are only a very few people who are actually that successful. And... Also, you can't be successful for a significant period of time because what happens in Substack is that you have, again, I know many writers who are constantly exploiting or presenting their traumas. And after a while, you run out of traumas. I mean, you're 45 years old. (laughs) You have, if you, if you now write about traumas, you are basically inventing them (laughs) at some point. But the point I'm trying to make is that the only way to get readers to subscribe to your Substack is to constantly regurgitate and vomit out more stories about trauma. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. this is a pattern I see among a lot of uh, writers. It's not healthy. It's just not healthy for you psychologically. It's a terrible existence. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's also, again... I think this is also what accounts for the, the the doldrums in publishing. We're not really seeing exciting, fantastic, brave writing. We're seeing well, writing that just replicates. Yeah. I mean that that was kind of where where uh, I was thinking about going next. Is kind of we're getting the last five minutes or so uh, 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 so of the show is all that we're talking about is this uh basically a a, a genre that uh, stifles political and personal creativity it kills it it doesn't stifle it it just absolutely has killed it i think i really do think it has killed it and i think that uh, it is practically impossible to produce analyses that don't rely on extremely worn out tropes of either trauma and personal narrative or simply replicate the same political analysis that you see. And I think social media here is a problem because every now and then when you see something that does, you know, you may not agree with it on every count politically. I think there's the other problem with the left and social media is we expect that a piece should resonate with us on every single point, right? Mm. And I think readers have become lazy and they've also become people who are who expect 
writing to operate like a buffet at a mm. restaurant you know they, they they're supposed to be allowed to pick and choose well this one doesn't have the most perfect politics on gender this one doesn't have the most perfect politics on socialism <laughs> so i'm not going to read it whereas i think complicated really interesting pieces are pieces that people always argue with and you yeah. should be arguing with and then you should be discussing it with people in real life and not <laughs> simply tweeting about it and i think as someone who has hosted salons for about uh, you know of different kinds for like 10 15 years now you know there's nothing quite like a vibrant in person or you know in zoom person yeah. uh, discussion but people don't know how to ha- how to have those discussions and i think political discourse is deadening it's not only being stifled it's i think I think I think there are just all kinds of long-term ill effects of mm-hmm. this uh, these trends in publishing and this emphasis on the personal and on trauma. I I would like to be more hopeful. All I can say is, people, come read me. <laughs> well, that that was actually I wanted to ask you about that because I think um, you know you you've sort of stuck to your guns on this for as long as i've known you which is getting over 15 years now um you've you've never sort of wavered on this even when there's been significant personal costs but you know i'm thinking about the doesn't even have to need to be a young person the person who uh is a good writer who does want to get a chance who is trying their best to write complicated stories or to provide political analysis uh, but maybe they're thinking there's no other way to get the work out there what what would you say i don't know what i would say to the young person that what i would say to the younger person starting out is i'm so sorry uh, because it's a dreadful time to do that right now i think i think that you sh- if you are someone who wants to become a writer who wants to be a writer and to continue writing for a long time write do what you have to do to earn the money And if it means, uh, you know, churning out those pieces, whatever, whether you call them puff pieces or whether it, but, you know, do that, but don't always draw a line is what I would say, Mm. because if you get into that mode of producing trauma in order to legitimate yourself as a writer, there is no going back and it's incredibly bad for you, just physically, psychologically, everything. It's just Mm. bad for you. It's a terrible way to live. But I think that if you are someone who wants to write, you should start writing in several kinds of genres, you know, send your writing out, do what you have to do to to maintain your writing life and continue, however, to have projects on the side that you mm-hmm. work on your own. Um, you know, I and I don't know what else to say. I have a very weird, unique career, you know, in the sense that I came up at a time when we still had free gay papers. Right. (laughs) And that's how I began, right? I began, like I shifted from being a graduate, you know, a PhD to learning how to become a reporter and journalist, for instance. Yeah. I feel feel terrible that those opportunities don't really exist right now, but... um, Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to uh, end on that rather uh, down note, uh, but that's sometimes just how it goes. That's the world we live in. Uh, our guest today was Yasmin Nair, Chicago-based writer and activist. You can find much of her published work at yasminnair.com. You can find her on Twitter, usually at Nair Yasmin, or on Facebook under her name. Uh, Yasmin, thanks for being here today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Karma. Uh, Thanks to Jade for producing the show, to Megan for engineering. I hope you all have a fantastic week, solstice, whatever holiday you might be celebrating. I'm your host, Karma Chavez, and this has been A Public Affair. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Letters and Politics. The pirate station, we bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication about